I wear two different suits, one that kind of um, literally and figuratively. Um, as you, if you turn around, you can see them. Guess which oh, one? Yeah. Guess which one I might be wearing in the Melvin? The, the Jackson Pollock one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that sort of blood splatter Jackson Pollock for the Melvins, and then I've got this white suit that is uh, Virgin uh, Bride white. Yeah, Virgin Bride white. <laughs> but uh, so that's that's an extra part about yeah. touring with the Melvins is that I've got that sort of thing. I don't know. What's it like touring with the Melvins, Jeff? You, you, I'm you're having the... a great time. Actually, it's more like we just swap out lead singers because not only is Steven in both bands, the drummer Dale is in both bands. So um, it's just the Red Cross goes on stage, Jason and I leave, and Buzz comes on. So get, it's more like a Broadway show. Yeah, I guess it would be from the standpoint of like, do you feel like you have to up your game when you're playing with a band like that? Um, they bring it, obviously. So we always bring it. Okay. We always bring it no matter what. And so do the Melvins. So that's not really an issue. I think it's more of a... Um, it's, I mean, the thing about the Melvins, it's like they have, they've always... Ever since I've been with them, and I think they've got a long tradition before me playing with them, they, they always put together, I wanted to say curate, but that's such the uh, <laughs> pretentious word that gets used. Curate a very um, diverse show. They're, they're not into playing with like stoner rock bands mm. or bands that would maybe be lumped in with them in a in a iTunes playlist. Yeah. I mean, at least since I've been playing with them, they're always looking for something that's kind of a different vibe. Variety. Yeah, variety. And yeah, so, I mean, I've been calling it a cavalcade of stars. <laughs> this actual, this particular tour is like a variety show. It's exactly what it is. Well, you mentioned costume changes, which is Yeah, well, yeah. I do costume change. And then also, um, well, the show starts off with uh, Toshi Kasai doing um, 20 minutes of... Um, what Mo- it, what? Moog. Um, he does like a, a Moog Raga. Like, okay. you know, Moog synthesizer, yeah, yeah, but yeah. A, kind of a meditative right. um, with visuals. That's how the show starts. And then we come out, do our full blast. Hour-long power pop extravaganza. Yeah, which is, our weird it's psychedelic the- power pop, weirdo punk rock thing. And then, like I said, we all leave the stage and Jason and I hang out, Stephen and... Dale changed their costumes. They go out with Buzz. And what we've been doing is, um, and then we do the finale together, both bands in, it, in their entire. Because Melvin's never do an encore. So, mm. so, so we, we do a finale. So Jeff and Jason come back out and we do a triple guitar attack fantasy. And it puts a big period at the end of the show. So it's, yeah. it, it's fun. It's like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Alice Cooper kiss kind of thing. Like every night, pretty much, there's always like all the hands in the air at the end of the night. And yeah. it just feels very satisfying. So this is a kind of full board tour. I know for a yeah. while there, you guys were kind of stop and go. I mean, there wasn't. But this, I mean, but the length of the tour? Yeah, just. Well, this is a 10-week tour, and for Red Cross, this is the longest tour we've done in, like, 20-some-odd yeah, years. Yeah, since the 90s. We've we, done one-month tours. We haven't played two months solid. We, for... we were on hiatus from 97 to 2006, and then when we got back together in 2006, we got to got back together with a lineup that had recorded our um, a record called Neurotica back in 87. And that lineup is great, you know, but it's just lots of practical matters. You know, everyone's got like, you know, serious careers and day jobs and stuff that really prevented us from doing anything more than ever a two-week run. And that went on for quite a long time. And then... uh, and then since Dale's been playing with us for about two years now, we've been able to do longer, more extended runs. So we did a month in 2017 of the States, and that was the longest we had done in years. We played the center of the country, which we hadn't done since the 90s. And now this is just sort of that same thing, but 
taking it further. And it's also right on the heels of a new album. So we haven't done that since 97, like a proper extended tour across the U.S., on the heels of a new album. When we put out Researching the Blues in 2012, we were only able to do two two-week runs each on the coast. So this Not is to really... mention a couple of Australians. Yeah, we've always been able to go over to yeah. Europe and Australia. I mean, go to Spain for a week yeah. or we go to Australia for a week where, where a promoter kind of organizes everything for you. That sounds like a good deal. It Just is. Take, take but, a kind of a semi-vacation or... Yeah, but it's kind of... You have to look at it that way yeah. too. It's not really like you're a working musician where you're sustaining yourself sure. from Yeah, it. it's good. It, there's so much prep involved getting ready to go on the road to do kind of show we do. So we might as well just keep it going keep it going as long as possible because the once we stop we atrophy and have to relearn everything <laughs> over again it's just you know steven steven and dale have been playing pretty much non-stop but um jason and i like from since the tour before this one what was the one before this one well we did a uh in 2017 we did a couple of tours we did um Europe. we did a u.s tour on our own which was really neat because we hadn't done a headlining tour in years and then we did with the melvins we did europe in, in Australia. Australia, which was incredible because we just kept traveling east. Yeah. I'd never done, I'd never approached Australia from the east. So it turns out you go all the way around if you we keep did. traveling. Yeah. Yeah. What I, I mean, the books <laughs> seem to be true. So I didn't play, I hadn't played live for a long time. Like after that like, European yeah, we, run. we made our record, but I, I, um, yeah, and it was like, I have to learn how to sing over again. You have to learn everything. It's just, you don't sucks. keep your chops up no. in the downs. No, <laughs> you don't like, you don't play every day at this no. point in your life. I love the, the only instrument I practice is the drums. Are the drums. Yeah. <laughs> Which are useless to me in this band. You know, I, I noodle on my guitar, yeah. but it's mostly the voice. I'm not singing for a while. It's just like, uh, you have to kind of learn how to, I have to learn how to do it all over again and I sing like and to play. I like to say my throat scabs over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously, like, you can start singing again. You'll pick it up. You know, you've been doing it your entire life. When you haven't toured for that long, how's your body holding up? Oh, good. Yeah. Pretty good. We all we all got a little bit sick and, um, you know, little, like, two-day colds and sore throats. But, yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing double duty. I'm, I'm, you know, I think it's neat about the opportunities I have now is just to see that it's like, you know, I don't know. There was just, like, a lot of, I think I probably... I'm kind of sidebarring here, but, mm. um, you know, in the nineties growing up and, and doing the music thing, I always kind of really bought into it being a young man's game, rock and roll. Sure. And, um, and I think that was probably more of just conditioning from the marketing machine that was only interested in selling young men. But there, there's, women. A, there's a certain aspect when you're really coming up and you're really just, you know, like in that van where that, that might not be something you could. Sure, there's practical things yeah. about, you know, whether or not you've got, you know, Sleep a family or, yet yeah. and, you know, you know, whether or not you can have, you have, you're afforded the luxury of going on the road and making no money. But, you know, but for the most part, there's also just this element of the industry not really being interested in promoting um, middle-aged people doing rock and roll. And that's changed. That's one positive thing about the mm. internet. You know, you don't really need that machine anymore because you can kind of connect with whoever, or at least for people like us that were once in the machine, once had a little sh break, you know, shot at it, and yeah. they fed us through it. Now there's, you know, thousands of people across the country that still are interested in us, you know, and so we have a way of connecting with them and going out and doing it. But um, that was a sidebar just about. Sure. But, but what I was saying, but, but personally, physically, 
more relating to your question, I've found that I'm actually much better at all elements of this mm. plane and also the physical side of it. I'm much more resilient and emotionally resilient too. Like I used to take it really hard if there was like a pressury big deal show and it didn't meet expectations for myself. And now I kind of, now I've really, I mean, a lot of it's probably also taking cues from Buzz and Dale who have been. Well, it's also years and years and years of experience. But I mean, I still care a lot. And if I have a frustrating night, I, I might be prone to not being my best self and turning into a baby man for a second. <laughs> but now I just kind of get it. I know what's not sweat. And so, so much of it is, it's the physical, it's the mental taxing on your brain. You know, if you care, yeah. it is. I mean, if I guess, you don't care, it's, then you, it's can probably, just, you can just be a, a, a machine. What's an example of something that, that, at the time seemed like the end of the world and now in hindsight you're it's ridiculous that you sweated over it just so many things you know just taking on other people's expectations yeah. of how we should perform but you mean you like in an or well, red cross has always been very strong performers but it's partially because we do care so much but like something like oh having kind of a sore throat singing at a pitch for a portion of the show would just wear on on me and i don't care anymore now, now yeah. I care because I, I'm actually much better than I was then because I don't freak out about those dumb, stupid yeah, things. Yeah, so, so much of it's They're a mental like, game. Yeah, it's just all these weird little things that hit you when you're playing like it, it, that pull you out of the moment. So like now it's easier to be in the moment and kind of let little, like, you know, little bits of um, little surprises just kind of bounce just, off you. The wisdom of knowing what to sweat yeah. and what yeah. not to sweat. I think the thing you have to keep in mind is that like even you've been doing this for decades now that every show is somebody's first show every yeah. show is somebody's like first shot at seeing you you don't want to beat yourself up over something but you do still want to yeah bring it every night well yeah because it's really depressing if you end up on automatic pilot yeah. that's what you do not want to do it and, and we've had tours many years ago that that was the case but i think right now we're really really grateful to be performing and it's really great to see people coming out and a lot of people are bringing their kids now you know and it's like it's just rad i love it and yeah, you know, like I agree with Stephen. I bet as a musician, as a singer, as a performer, is like hands down way better now than ever. Yeah, I mean, it's just because it just it's more second nature. I mean, it's just more. I don't know. Is there a point in your respective careers that you can look at that felt like you were? on autopilot that felt like you just weren't giving it your all? Surprisingly not. But there were like a couple like the tail ends of a really long grueling tour like say there's been a few shows that were kind of just on automatic pilot for the most part no because you never really know what you're going to get when you get up there. And you know we, we do sound check every day but it always sounds completely different than when we get on stage in front of mm. people. So there's still enough to keep us on your toe to keep you on your I, toes. I think around 97 when we went on hiatus back in the in the day you know the weird thing about our experience is that we started so young we were playing in clubs by the time i was 12 so you were 11 when you started right? yeah, yeah so it's prof like professionally been yeah. professional so by the time 97 rolled around we were almost had been doing it for almost 20 years and and i just remember around that time like you know approaching 30 Approaching 30 and going after goals that I had set in place very firmly at, at 11 started to feel kind of irresponsible yeah. or, or maybe just, I don't know, irresponsible, just like, just curious about, you know, what else is out there. And I think just anxiety got the best of me around then and took and zapped me of a lot of the the joy of doing it, the anxiety of expectations that I had for myself and 
the team that worked with us and all that. So I would never say that we were ever phoning it in at that time at all. But I remember battling, I guess, what I would just call depression now, you know, and so that was hard. So it's very different now to approach it with um, a bunch of different life experience. You know, for me, having Jeff on the road with me is um, because I've toured so much in, in the past 10 years without him between Melvin's and then I'm in a, another band called Off. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's just, I mean, not to be corny, but there's just so much gratitude, you know. it's it's. I'm very aware of how unique it is to play with a sibling. I'm very aware now of how different it is to have this, you know, having been a side musician or or a member of a band, but in, you know, a band that I didn't start and things like that. It's, uh, you know, it's really... It's a very special thing. So I just think that that's a big thing that only time can give you. Wisdom in life, you know, cobbling together some wisdom from life experience is... I I wish, you know, the whole expression about, you know, youth is wasted on the young. I I don't think I could have been given myself this when I was 25 anyways, because you, you, you don't hear it when you're 25. I've told kids that are like, you know, their bands are feuding and it's like, but they've got a certain amount of success. I'm like, well, you guys can like work it out and figure out how to do this or you can take 10 years off, but you're going to get back together. In yeah. your mid to late thirties, likely you've made enough of an impact now where the offers are going to get to the place where you're going to get, assuming everyone's healthy enough. So which path do you want to take? There is this idea, and and I think you you've spoken a little bit counter to it, but there is this idea that you do just get that one shot, right? That's sort of the mythology in, in the music business. I, yeah, out. well, like there's one view, there's only one view of success, yeah. you know. And I, I personally, I didn't harbor that like whole like triple platinum billion selling records thing uh, that expectation too close to heart I don't know but I can't speak for him or anyone else in the band I just wanted to just continue doing it it must skew your perspective though when your friends and the people you're playing with hit that level of success yeah that's a little bit you know that that's always a little strange when people that you know all of a sudden but you also know that it's also chance you know Mm -hmm. it's a big part of it it's not timing it's not like someone's you know taking something from you and their success is not taking anything from you but at the same time you do see there's just like certain timing certain luck just certain things have to happen and yet you know on top of being good and interesting good and interesting isn't always enough to have that type of crazy lottery success but that one chance thing i feel like i mean maybe that was just that's just my perspective because that's my experience well we've been that's not really your experience we've been on several major labels sure no but several different but what i was going to say is i feel like that it's a different it's a different environment now Mm. you know i just think the artists have so much more say over their their path um you know it just you know like uh I mean, some someone else could explain this much more eloquently than I, but I just think that media has changed so much, and I do think it affects art. You know, artists that are maybe aiming to become mainstream artists on some level. I think it it must it must affect you differently because we don't really have that kind of a world anymore. Where there's never going to be a moment where there's however many people that were watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, mm. where everyone's tuned into the that same moment. I mean, I know as much has been written on this topic. I don't really, I just, I can't see that ever happening again. And so expectations are different anyways. Everything is very... Personalized. 
Yes. Niche or niche or whatever. Niche. Niche. However that is. And um, so I think that puts a different expectation on young artists today. But I think for us, you know, we did have that moment where we had built our way up from the, you know, college level and then suddenly it was time for us to sign to a major label. And the person that signed us wouldn't necessarily have a very clear vision about us. It was just his moment to be able to sign a band at his corporate job. And it happened to be kind of our moment to be signable. And sure, we could have, we probably had a couple of different labels we could have chosen from mm-hmm. at that moment. But it was more like, it was just this kind of moment that that we were afforded by... I don't know. I just don't think that that is the same way that it goes now. Sure. You know, I think yeah. it's a dip, bit different. And um, and I'm not saying I ever expected us to sell 3 billion records either. I remember when we got our shot on Atlantic Records in 1990, I couldn't relate to anything that was mainstream successful. Mm. We grew up loving mainstream music, but mainstream music of another era. Um, you know, we were Beatles fans and Rolling Stones fans, but in 1990, what was going on was like the Spin Doctors mm-hmm. or Whatever, which I, I could not relate to at all. Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi, yeah. things like that. And so, sure, we had our like monkeys, Beatles fantasies, and we didn't want to be negative and say, like, and close ourselves off to the possibilities. But at the same time, we didn't have a pessimistic opinion either, which I think nowadays is probably a wiser way to go, which would, it would have been sort of like, really? You think so? Okay, well, go for it. But if it doesn't happen, yeah. it's not on me, that's on you. And I've known some people who have had that opinion, and I think it was easier for them to weather that experience. Jeff, I think you alluded to this a a little bit. When you guys were caught up in that, when you were on the major label, at the time, were you chasing that kind of success? Creatively, not at all. No, creatively, we were just doing our own. We had come up with this sort of recipe that was like hyper bubblegum music from the 70s. Something that would have been a radio hit 20 years prior. Probably, yes. (laughs) You know, something bubblegum factory maybe would have sat well on like, you know, you know, next to yummy, 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 I got sure. love in my tummy. But um, but in 1990... And that Archie song. We, yeah. weren't try- we weren't trying to make that exact. No, yeah. we were trying to blend it with other yeah. influences. Yeah, we were, and we were we trying were to blend it with... We were just mixing our stew. We do this, yeah. the same thing we do now, you know, but just at that time it was on Atlantic Records. But there was no sense of like, oh, that Spin Doctor song is really popular no, right no. now. No, but, but the only thing I would say that the industry kind of got in our way a little bit and, and imposed themselves was having to work with producers that we didn't mm. really relate to. And they, you know, and... Uh, you know, no one forced us, but we they did force us to work with a producer, that's for sure. I, Looking back, I wish that we had just worked with a really very competent engineer that just like realized what we were looking for sonically and then left us alone. Because what we found ourselves in this position is that we were working with engineers, essentially, but who were ambitious producers. And they were concerned about their credit and getting to the next place. And they would impose like maybe a guitar sound on us that we would like fight with them over in the studio. There's a lot of roadblocks and unnecessary roadblocks, but... 
and it was annoying, you know? Yeah. So now I listen back to some of those records and I'd be like, it didn't sound like the way we wanted it to sound. Yeah. We wanted to take this bubblegum thing and then we were always told them, no, listen to Live at Leeds. No, listen to the first Zeppelin album. Mm. Those are, I mean, maybe we don't have those skills yet, but that, heavy. that's the energy yeah. we're looking for. Yeah. And then they, you'd be countered with, no, I'm looking for more of a glassy guitar sound. <laughs> I'd be like, what do you mean glassy? What the fuck is that? You mean like, you know? Being in the 80s, that was a real, yeah, that was horrifying to us. Yeah, and that's another example of, you know, where you're intersecting, like timing, yeah. you know, talking about timing and all that stuff. And you have to, you know, so you are somewhat, you have to accept that there's a chance element too, and as much to do with the context of the, the popular culture that you are intersecting with at that given time. Somebody I think really nailed it for me. I was talking to them on the show and they said, you know, the two things that you can use to pinpoint time frame are haircuts and drum sounds i the snare yeah, yeah the snare how long the act the gate the yeah. reverb goes on the snare yeah things like that i don't know i mean those kinds of things would used to really annoy me a long time ago i i finally over them <laughs> yeah clearly i still ponder them like because i can speak quickly about them but is that part of the reason why you got your producing chops was yeah kind of get, getting thrown through the ringer 100 well, for the most part we for the most part we were always producing our records you know, but we, but we but we would just either have like more of a, a pushback from yeah, someone yeah. or not, and we weren't the most articulate. You know, we didn't really know yeah. how to stand our ground, and when you don't have that, but you shouldn't have to fight to get your ideas across. You shouldn't have That's, to, but it's hard when you're dealing with a, a huge machine and you're yeah. just a bunch of kids. Well, yeah, and also yeah, yeah. there's that, a there's a technical side to it. That's the thing is the technical <clears throat> side came later. <clears throat> but that was the freedom. But but you're speaking to technicians who speak a different language, yeah. and if you don't have that vocabulary, you're, you're you're at the mercy of them, and you also must assume that they know what they're doing to some degree too. Sure, but they might just have a. There might be a chasm sure. in taste where, like, you might be referencing something and they just don't get it. But that's been a big difference for me. That's, I mean, I'm much more of the technical person now in our group, and and that's definitely been inspired by the frustrations I've had making Red Cross records with other people, and that wasn't always the case. Sometimes we had really good experiences, but often. You know, they weren't, and often they were frustrating, but, you know, and also looking back, I mean, to be totally fair, I mean, I think that once again, we weren't great at communicating. We didn't have the best, you know, we weren't the most emotionally mature people either. I'm sure those, those situations could have been navigated differently too, and been less, um, the ones that were frictiony could have been less frictiony on our part as well. When grunge becomes a big, a major label phenomenon, how much does that actually change the math for you as a band? Or does it just sort of change the producer's expectations in terms of the sound they're looking for? Well, for me with grunge, it was just like when Nirvana happened, it was a, it was a really rare example of, um, of music breaking through to the mainstream in your era that you like. When yeah. it was all, yeah, rock and roll returning to its roots. And that sounds like a cliche, but it's true. Everything went from being digital, echoey, canon-like, tinfoil to... To back to guitars, bass, mm-hmm. and drums, very recorded. Very I mean, organic. they might have their own kind of punchy way I mean, of attacking. It only lasted for a couple sure. of years, yeah. and then now it's you know it's back to robot music. But I mean, I'm not putting robot music down because I enjoy it. I mean, I like Jeffless K-pop. He's a big not, K-pop. No, fan. that's not true. I like a few. <laughs> groups from a certain area. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. But but, but, he, but he's been a big fan of those yeah, groups yeah, yeah. for a good decade. Okay, real decade. quick, aside, top K-pop bands, go. Oh, my... Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Not the most popular Just, just recommend some K-pop. Oh, okay. 21's my all-time favorite. Okay. For Big Bang is good. Um, I like all the girl groups, like Girls' Generation, Miss A, 
for a minute. The newest band, the newest groups, Blackpink, Black saw, Pink, them I'm, last, yeah, saw them last. Yeah, saw them there last year. They're they they were like the the band that was created that created after Twenty One broke up. They had the same kind of like they're like the outsider pop group. He goes, you go deep. Oh, I can go much <laughs> deeper. No, no, he's been no, talking about yeah. yeah. I think you undersold your appreciation well, of K-pop. Well, because what I like, I like, it's called second gen. Like the first generation um, was like, I guess from the early, early 2000s and the late 90s when it started happening. And then second generation was when, like creatively, it was really peaking. And that started in like 2009 and ended in about 2004. 15 when when the last of them last of those great groups kind of disappeared so it's called second generation the fans call that too are, are we gonna are we gonna start seeing some of these influences seep into red cross oh they have they have yeah 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 yeah, yeah we have a song called fighting and that's a that's a korean pop term it just means it's like a rallying cry it doesn't mean you're actually fighting with someone. It's a really yeah. positive kind of thing. And that's the name of one of our songs. So that kind of creeped in there. And yeah, there's a few riffs that creeped in, but I'll never tell. I'll never tell. Getting back to the idea of jealousy, it's kind of unavoidable, but you can't, a band like Nirvana, you can't fault if you know you no. really appreciate what they're bringing to the table. I was only jealous if somebody absolutely horrible was all of a sudden became big. Yeah. That were from our, you know, I would be like jealous that, Poison was big. You know, we would have never liked them even if they weren't big. It didn't matter. But like people that were kind of doing what you do anyway, that's that was just encouraging. You guys were kind of like adjacent to them, right? I mean, you were. We in played the a LA show scene. at Poison once, but we're definitely okay. not in the same scene. Yeah. That was like a weird thing okay. where we ended up like, you know, we. The thing about Red Cross is that we could kind of, since we were never part of. We were never a part of anyone's genre bandwagon, but we were always just such our own thing that we always found ourselves having to pair up in other environments. And but we, were, we would always find like the freaky bands to align with from all the the various offshoots of LA. And also, just so we had this weir- we had this weird experience of starting at the beginning of this movement. Yeah. You know, we started at the same time as Black Flag, yeah. did all our first shows with them. So even like six years into it, when we're still teenagers, we had a certain sort of I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't think of it this way then, but if I look at it now, we had a certain cachet very early on where people would accept us into their environment, even if we didn't totally conform to the rules and regulations of their limited genre. Well, we were educators. I mean, we were so young, but very precocious. I mean, like, like you know, to discover like Ramones and very early on and to be in the punk movement, but still appreciate Jim Dandy and not be like Black Oak, Arkansas and not be ashamed and be able to educate the kids. Yeah. We made an educational record called Teen Babes for Monsanto for our, for the peers that who are our age that were in punk scene who didn't really know music. They didn't really understand the music that came before that kind of made the punk rock yeah. that created Basically, it was the the, the nucleus, nucleus, nucleus. Yeah. It's such an interesting angle, like to, to be educators. But how, how do you <laughs> how do you do that and like not be completely pretentious and yeah. kind of be an well, asshole? Well, we were about completely it. pretentious, <laughs> and maybe we were assholes too. No, we just played. You know, we just thought it would be fun, and you know, it, it worked because we actually found a lot of the people that we still know today from like making that record. The teen. I mean, I mean, the album. Buzz always says that's the first record he knew of us, and that's when he felt like he had 
identified with us because he liked a lot of that stuff. Because yeah. I mean, when hardcore punk rock came out, you you know you pre- you, might, you just had that uniform and you had to like this kind of hardcore stuff. But as musicians, you knew where it all came from. I mean, even. I brought up Black Oak, Arkansas, but I remember Greg Ginn from Black Flag had Black Black Oak, Arkansas records, you Mm. know? So it's like, oh yeah, these people who are 10 years older experience the music we're listening to now firsthand. So, you know, we knew the secret sauce to like the formula. And I think that it, uh, that made us a little bit different than kids that were, that were our age at the time. And I think for me, it was also just a thrill of like, because we when we first started, we were anti-cover band. That was what you sort of... That's what young people did if they started a band. And they would... You would... You know, those kids were playing backyard parties for the jocks like and the cheerleaders. Was, a, was, a, was, a, was a, one of the top ones in L.A. Right, like, and they would have been doing, like, you know, fog hat covers yeah. or something. And, the doors uh, were probably pretty big, I would guess, in L.A. Yeah, yeah oh, I don't remember the door. I don't remember the doors having a big resurgence in the, in the late 70s. It was mostly Black Sabbath, yeah. um, Led Zeppelin. Um, I don't even remember the Who. Yeah, it would just be like that kind of rock, and they were just the people who did the best versions of them, uh, most professional sounding. And they, and they would have like you know walls of marshals in someone's backyard in front of a cinder block wall, and uh, you know, and at any rate, so we, you know, when we started our band, we couldn't do that stuff. That was like wizardry, and we also we had just discovered the Ramones and the Runaways, and we were kind of inspired to just write our own stuff, but. Three or four years into it, we spent our, a hankering to sort of learn more about this this craft that we grew up loving, this arena rock. And so I think that making that record was also a little bit of an education for ourselves in just like the construction of of yeah, we kind of great learned, music. We kind of know? learned a lot about songwriting from making that record, from cover doing covers and making them your own, and seeing how songs are structured and what's repeated a lot in songs that you like. So I mean, you know, so you were educating yourselves as much yeah, as anything. Yeah, that's yeah. why I'm surprised that not more of those low '70s cover group people didn't go off to have like <laughs> big songwriting careers, except for like. But, but, but well, you said Van Halen. Van was Halen. Part, that was yeah. an example. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these bands were in cover bands. You know, but I mean, a lot of they but don't talk. About it because sure. it's like not a proud yeah, moment. Yeah. There is this co- conception that that punk was uh, a reaction to kind of like bloated seventies sure. stadium music at the time, but it sounds like you guys were completely on board. Well, with it's funny all the people that we knew that were real that were musicians liked that. Kind well, of. I mean, it's like Black Flag would have been like an example of a band that was tearing down all of these yeah. constructs from the the era before them. But at the same time, the guys in the they band. were big fans of that yeah. stuff. You know, like it turns out that Black Flag were into the Grateful Dead, even you know, and so you know they were into the most sort of overwrought like two hour jam bands. Yeah. Okay. And, they grew up in hippie, real hippie beach communities. In the 70s, we were but, in the 60s and 70s. And also, you know, Black Flag, Greg Ginn was, you know, UCLA educated. He was smart enough to probably understand that he needed to react to, to, sure. to, to make some kind of voice for his generation or something, you know. He probably understood it on some kind of sociological level that I wouldn't have understood. Yeah, we were just kids, dude. We were just little kids, you know. Was there anything that, that you feel like, and any chances you didn't take, any any 
thing you didn't do because it wasn't punk enough, you know, or it didn't feel like sort of like true to that ethos? We definitely didn't. We definitely have, didn't no. turn anything down because it wasn't yeah. punk enough. Yeah, I don't. Sure. I have zero punk regrets. <laughs> That's I can. I still do not regret. Was there ever though a sense when you kind of kind of look back and and you had some of these opportunities in front of you that something like that we may have turned that down it looks like it was like or that it was self sabotage that you like mm. only thing I would say there might have been times where things just seemed too stressful to try to do. Sure. When we were making Third Eye, and I was already talking about the glassy guitar sound, <laughs> what was that guy's name? G.E. Smith. Was oh, yeah, right. from oh, SNL. Yeah. Smith. I know, but he was getting referenced in the studio by our producer, and we'd listen to that, uh, you know, Paul Schaefer band guitar sound. I'd be like, I don't want that guitar sound. He was sound. also the guitar player from Hall & Oates, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he, the, the glassy guitarist from, from Paul Schaefer's band wasn't G.E. Smith, though. G.E. Smith. Uh, he was, was on SNL. Yeah. yeah, he's always kept it very brief. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm sorry, G.E. Sorry, G.E. Yeah. <laughs> no, not UG. I meant the, the other guy from Paul Schaefer Band, who yeah. I'm sure is an awesome musician. Yeah, no, they were going for glassy tones for a while, but yeah, that was we. And that was we, like we equated that police way. and flow. It was like yeah. police and like Phil Collins records. Yeah. And, yeah. That really like yeah. staccatoy sort of yeah, and it just has a watery tone. Yeah. But like we know, we were never like you know that doesn't jive with our punk ethic or ethos or yeah. whatever, and we were always kind of game to. Do throw it. ourselves into weird situations. If anything, it would be more like us progressing as musicians and performers and then still playing with punk bands was actually the ballsy thing for us. We, you know, I remember we played a show at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles supporting social distortion at the height of their initial powers when they start they put out their first album and suddenly became mm-hmm. um, really big in this burgeoning punk scene. And uh, you know, we just had like a 2,000 angry skinheads wanting to kill us because we, you know, we looked like the New York Dolls in 1973, you know, or something. And it was very confusing. You've formed some lasting relationships. You know, you're playing with Keith and Auk, for example. But, I mean, do you think that, in hindsight, that it was a net positive or negative that you were never really a part of a specific scene in that same way oh we would never wanted to be part of a scene entirely we're on the outskirts of all of those like the sst thing mm-hmm. we, we never wanted to be an sst record do, do you think though that it might have been detrimental to the career that you weren't easily identifiable maybe maybe, maybe yes it's a, it's maybe, a very maybe. referenced thing nowadays yeah so maybe yeah. yes but maybe no at the same time i i i don't see the joy i would have got joy from being involved with that movement at the time and then we were then and then i had a girlfriend who was in the, in the paisley underground movement okay we were friends with all those bands we weren't paisley underground we were a punk band we were friends with you know hardcore people but we weren't a hardcore oh yeah band. i found a flyer recently that was um we were playing with black flag and the bangles okay yeah in 1984 but i set that show up and <laughs> yeah. then, but the thing about it is is like we just were i think the core was we were huge just rock and roll fans and we came up in the punk scene and that was just basically the underground movement and you knew just it was you didn't really want to be part of anyone's club but 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 we did have friends but the question is sort of like do you think that you could have gotten um, further or gotten a free ride or something from 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 a scene that we never really aligned ourselves with I mean maybe you know maybe there would be a one record on SST from 1985 that go for a lot of money on Discogs right now i don't know i mean we didn't we were it might make it easier grunge bands and we were the same exact influence as all those bands but we didn't go full grunge but i mean i guess part of it too though is is i you know i get the idea this is probably less of the case now just because of the industry and technology and the way people consume music but record labels wanted a label that they could they wanted a basket they could to market yeah they needed market and I, i understand that dilemma for them 
but that's not really that, that's a market yeah, yeah that's sure. not a, that's not the band's ultimately like down the line if that could have harmed yeah maybe well, yeah. I mean we could have participated in the marketing of our group I mean you know I mean honestly yeah. came up with something that they could sell I mean we just were just ourselves and you know it was just kind of a little bit in between a lot of things I mean you could say on one level like yeah maybe it would have been easier to, to tour in Europe uh, if, yeah. we, if we had been associated with some actor rather or not but um, this actor or another or another label or something but at the same time it's like well you know look it's 40 years later and Jeff and I you are doing this podcast with you and we don't really have a lot of people from our graduating class that are have that are still doing this, yeah. you know? So I think that it's... You and know, a lot of the people that made it really big died. Yeah, so I mean, I, mean, <laughs> I would think that our yeah. outsiderness is probably, at least how I see it yeah. as that, is uh, probably is more of a tribute to our, our longevity than anything. Well, so. we've just... I mean, I say we as a, I think as a band, when we're together as the Red Cross, the band, we've had this just intense intensely protected identity we just know what it is who we are and it's like sometimes it doesn't make sense to people and sometimes you know people really dig it i imagine people dig it because we like you said we're still doing it many years many years later it's a weird thing it's, it's really, really weird it's really hard to articulate yeah. something like identity and and you know and for someone like me that i have continued to hold on to the red cross identity but then i still I, I interact with other environments yeah. and bands are such their own culture. You know, I'm very aware of inter internal band dynamics and things, a lot of unspoken stuff. I'm, I, I'm very aware of it and not in a way where like I'm affected. I'm just sensitive to it. So, and I always want whatever environment I'm in, I always want to do the best possible job. You know, I can do so. I want to figure out how to find my way and to be a part of that. And so it's really unique for me to be a part of it, to do a tour like this, where it is such a strong, there's a, with Red Cross, there's all history mm -hmm. and it has a strong point of view, I think. And then to put on this other suit and then take on literally Melvin's, yeah. which also have a lot of history and a very strong identity. And it's asking, it's kind of asking a lot of the audience yeah. to accept it, you know? Well, but like, like I said earlier, it's more like a theatrical show. You're putting on a suit. You're still well, being it's still not, honest, but you're, yeah. you're putting on, this is, Act two, but I'm but at the same time I'm not a Juilliard trained actor who's just taking on these different characters. Well, how many years does it take to master your trade? I mean, you've been doing it since you were 11 years old, so you know it's. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that it's not a character. You know, it yeah. is there's an authenticity. It's literally, there. you yeah, with a jacket you. on, yeah, it's and you got to figure out how to let you now be part of that, and what's what part of you also identifies with you know the mad the mad crazy Buzz Osborne or, you know, and how can you, how can you accentuate that in a way that still feels authentic to you? I mean, I try not to overthink it, but it's, it, it's, it's a little, it's a brain teaser at times. You alluded to this earlier when, when you sort of step out for a second and look at the fact that you guys are doing the thing that you started doing when you were 11 and 14 respectively, yeah. it's really strange. Like what other, what other instances are there in professional life where people are doing that? Well, I know for a fact, what I came to my conclusion is being an artist, being a, you know, a, a musician artist is for me is not an occupation. It's an orientation. 
<laughs> because as in, as in you identify as artists. Yes, because I, when I wasn't doing it yeah. for 10 years, I was still thinking about yeah. it. I was still listening to other people, still, you know, creating at home. It was clear that you would you would come back to it someday? Yeah, yeah. But I wasn't, like, I didn't do the performing aspect. Yeah. I never said, I will not perform for 10 years, but I didn't. And um, But I was always creative and always doing musical things and everything. And I just realized, oh, this is just a part of me. You could, like, not have sex for 10 years, but you would still be gay or straight, right? Right. That's exactly yeah. ex- exactly <laughs> it. And it's like, oh, yeah, I am. This is what I am. And we always talk about identity. Like when we said the Red Cross identity is us two together. But even with even when, you know, we're not working together, I'm still this because I've been doing it for so long. But, you know, it's, 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 just, a, it's just a part of yeah. my being. I, I like that. It's not an occupation. It's less an occupation, more of an orientation. That's very good. Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I, don't, know, I don't know if you can relate to that, but that's how I I mean, feel. I think that Jeff is way more... Uh, I, I, I tend to think that he's more, I don't know, this real deal than I am. The oh, fact my that God. I, I mean, I just... The fact that I can, tr- like... Um, I can find my place in other environments. I don't think it makes me less authentic. I mean, it also makes me just willing. I know people that won't do that. You know, that blows their mind too much. But like... Do what? You know, be in someone else's band. Oh, yeah. I think I would... I've had other bandmates that say they would never do that, but they're all the, the well one. Maybe they're not one bandmate. I mean, the thing I will say about Stephen, he's you know he's much more the musician than I am. He understand, he knows what he's playing, and he knows what he's doing. I'm just strictly instinctual. But yeah, but playing. Uh, yeah, that's also way. the difference between me. I went to school, yeah, but when yeah. we were on a hiatus, I went. I went to music school and studied theory. Like I did things. He, he would never do that. I wanted to know the rules, not so I could abide by the rules. I just wanted to know the language. Yeah, you alluded to this earlier that, that there was a point when you were looking at it, and it was a little. There was some depression, as you said earlier, kind of kind of around it. Were you? Were you actively considering doing something else, something not music related? No, I just I just started thinking maybe I should be producing or maybe I should like I'm friends with Pat Smear and I watched him go from working at the SST mm-hmm. Superstore to join joining Nirvana. Yeah. And I started thinking like, well, maybe there's the next generation Nirvana I need to step into. I don't know. I just I just was open. I just wanted to be open because once we talk about the identity once again and like it was a really it's somewhat suffocating to to grow up. Uh, you know, entirely in my entire adolescence, my puberty years, everything into young adult, into adult years had all been under the banner yeah. of Steve from Red Cross. And so I just, as a, and, and younger brother, Jeff has a really big personality. And growing up, it was even like, at times it was, it was, it, it, it was, it was hard for me at times. There was lots of pros to it, many pros, but, uh, but just trying to find my own way and figure out, you know, which what, what there was out there in the world for me. But it never wasn't related to music, you know. I always was interested in trying to find a way to make music work. But but I even did things like I stepped onto the other side and I, I worked for record labels at times too. What, that's where the orientation comes into yeah. play. But see, I would have never had the nerve to like... Um, I mean, I admire the person that has the nerve to audition for Smashing Pumpkins. I, I admire that. I mean, I think it's like... Well, I didn't audition whoa. for Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. I auditioned for Zwan. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, the Frogs guys were in the Smashing Pumpkins for a hot minute. Oh, were they? That was really interesting. I mean, really, you mean like Dykes or We, the Frogs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. We were playing, uh, like, touring keyboard for the Smashing oh, wow. Pumpkins. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Go, goes to show, you know, something. Well, it's can... very funny. I'm, yeah, Billy Corgan's into weird stuff. Yeah. I remember the brief period I was with, I, they kept calling me back. And, um, and then one time I was like, okay, come in. This time bring, it, bring in some riffs. It's like, okay. <laughs> so I brought in, um, <laughs> you didn't say it had to be my own. Yeah. So I brought in a riff from um, the fourth Seeds album, okay. Future. It was like, down, 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 That's when they started getting like really heavy, right? Yeah, it was this cool riff. But then Jimmy Chamberlain came in and was really weird and he didn't land on yeah. one and he turned it into like a salsa thing. Well, you know, it's so weird. And the, but, the, but the, hang on. So the yeah. weird thing about that, and it just reminded me, Billy Corgan had no idea what it was. And then I, and then. And then, and then I told him later, well, that was a Seeds riff. Oh, really? And he was kind of taken aback. And then about 10 years later, he Not was... Not even 10 years later. A few years later, he got really into the the, the, the book about the Source family. The oh, yeah, cult, yeah, yeah. And then learned that Sky Saxon was yep. involved with yep. that. Got really into it and got involved with those people, recording some of those people. And Sky Saxon. Yeah, yeah so he was... So he was at Sky Saxon's memorial. Yeah. To be fair, you guys recorded a Charles Manson song. Yes, we did. <laughs> Well, we were we we used to do seeds covers in the in the early eighties. So, but the thing is, I just thought it was funny that you you talked about uh, just kind of frogs, popping. yeah, and then Billy Corgan, and it reminded me of the fact that there's a weird little tidbit that I brought a seeds riff into a Zwan audition. Billy Corgan was taken aback, and then less than a decade later, he's jamming. He was he was yeah. jamming with Sky Saxon and totally obsessed. But you planted the seeds, so I to did. speak. Maybe yeah. I did. What happened in your life? Like, how did you? Claw your way out of that depression. <laughs> Which, you mean the depression about the, about the band going to hiatus? Yeah, not the uh, well. I don't know. You know, it was weird. I remember at that time. Um, one thing I remember, I was really depressed. It's true. And one of the ways I knew was because um, I couldn't get the cassette out of my out of the pickup truck, my car, and it was um, it was Abba Gold. <laughs> No one could be depressed listening to us. Well, so I, I leaned on it really yeah. heavily. I listened to it for two years solid. Yeah. yeah. Two years solid was the only music I li- mostly listened to talk radio and gone to some weird... I went through a weird, like, Dr. Laura phase. Yeah. Don't tell anyone. That's <laughs> called anhedonia. You know the term? That's when you can't... When you're so depressed that you can't enjoy, like, art and things yeah. you usually yeah. enjoy. So I was and, definitely going through that. Yeah. And then... But, you know, but I did still... I cling to, you know, Benny and Bjorn and, you know, and Agneta and Anafried. And, uh, yeah, so that was an example of that. But, um, you know, then slowly I just, uh, I got back into music and I, and, and well, I was studying and then I ended up, um, touring with Beck. So I did audition. I did continue to do yeah. auditions and stuff. And then I, uh, you did scouting and A&R. I, yeah, I did all that kind of stuff and I produced, but I remember I was producing a record once in Norway. I was producing a Turbo Negro oh, record. Oh God, yeah. 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 I produced the, um, the third album. I don't know. I, I, the guitarist has since told me it's a C plus record. I don't know, but, uh, uh a record called Party Animals. Yeah. But, um, was, uh, was that the one with the Pet Sounds Cover-ish? No, 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 that's okay. Ask Cobra. That's, that's, that's Cobra. early okay. days. Yeah, yeah. This is the record. This would be considered maybe their third finest album. Okay, well, that's pretty good. Yeah, if you go, if you go, um, if you go, Apocalypse Dudes. Probably sure. And then some people might say Ask Cobra, or they might say uh, the record after Apocalypse Dudes. Yeah. So skipping my my, uh, I'm missing it right now. But that this one has All My Friends Are Dead on it. At any rate, you know, I just remember. Um, I was getting sick of being in a supportive role to other musicians. And that's when I, that's when the orientation thing comes into play, I think, because uh, I just remember becoming 
a little bit jealous that they were going to go out on tour after all this was done and they got to go out there and, you know, get that, um, that, uh, you know, positive feedback from a crowd. You know, I think that records are difficult because it's just, it's, there's no gratification. There's no immediate gratification. I mean, you talk about live bands too. Yeah. We're performing like us with our band. We've always approached it. That's, that's, that's an art form in itself. Yeah. As it is with Turbo Negro. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And I really, you know, I love those guys and I identify with their trip, but I mean, I think that was one of my, when I really realized, Oh, I'm getting weird. I need to be yeah. back in in playing live. I need to go out there and perform more. I mean, obviously, some hiatuses between records are longer than others, but is there always just a tacit understanding after you're done with each album that there's going to be another one? I always kind of feel like that. I always think because when we when um, when you're working when we were working on this one, I was I was thinking oh. I want to do that the next time, blah, blah, blah. You just have yeah. these little, these little mental notes and, you know, and it, it you, you can't predict the future, but I, yeah, I, I've never, I have not had that feeling like this is the last. No. Record. I haven't had that feeling. Maybe I will one day, but I, I definitely do. Also, this is now, you know, so we've been on merge since, um, researching the blues when we made researching the blues we didn't have any label we just made it on our own which that was really hard kind of doing it in your own little think tank wondering like does anyone give two shits what am i doing that was what 2012 that came out yeah Yeah. but we had started it earlier and um and it took a long time to finish it and um and it was really and it's a very simple record actually it's just but yeah we had no headlines so we were just like we'd be like painting a little bit here in the afternoon but like 15 years or something prior to that one yeah well because but if 97 was show world and then 2012 yeah yeah so that uh, 2012 we reactivated in 2000 Two way we got back together in 2006 As for our first life. show, but then we started um, started researching the blues around 2008. Went to the studio for a couple of weeks and basically did about you know the majority of the record, but we didn't finish the vocals and we or didn't or we didn't mix it. And so and it basically was just this long time of learning how to do those things ourselves. Yeah. And and then you know and I did a record with Off. In mm. that meantime, and I saw those guys just encourage themselves into finishing it, and I thought, well, fuck it, why am I not finishing that record? That's so stupid. I, sh- I need to just finish it, and uh, and so that's when we did it. And then, but then, anyways, having this like team, knowing that there's a group of people that want, that are embracing you and want to support you, want to put something out, want to make sure that as many people as possible we'll give you a release date. Yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah. Like, that makes a big difference. A deadline. Yeah. yeah. It makes a big difference for, like, the DIYers. There you go. That was Jeff and Steve McDonald from the legendary Red Cross. Their latest Beyond the Door is out now on Merge Records. Thanks to them for taking the time. Thanks to Caroline for helping us set up that conversation. It was a lot of fun. Buzz Osborne was walking around in the background. What a great time. It was had by all. Thanks to you, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or on Spotify and YouTube. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. It's the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L-related information. And that's about all we got for this week, so stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L. 